Welcome to Volume 2 of the Blind Spots Podcast. I'm Chris Warwardell, joined by Greg Crone. Last week we talk, uh, talked about the beginnings of the world of mixed martial arts. I learned quite a bit of stuff that I didn't know before, and a large part of it, Greg, was about the – I feel like I missed out on that early part of mixed martial arts, which was, like you said, bas- <laughs> basically just the Wild West. I, you know, I say I want to go back and watch it knowing full well that I never actually will, but – I wouldn't mind if it was on one of the screens in front of me. I would definitely pay attention. I mean, yeah, it was it was a, a whole different ball game than the nice polished product that you see today on FS1 or Pay Per View or Fox. Whenever whenever you tune in, or even in Bellator's case, Spike TV. Uh, you know, it, it was it was a completely different world uh, to what it to what it has has sort of evolved into. And by the way, thank you everyone for for checking out the podcast this first week. We actually cracked the top 200 uh, professional sports podcasts on iTunes, which is awesome for a show in its first week. I can't wait to see where we go moving forward. And uh, I didn't look at the ratings today. I'm going to actually do that right now. But uh, from what I saw, it was, you know, things were things were pretty good. I think we had uh, something like 15 to 20 ratings, and uh, I think it's a five star average right now we are we're sitting at 17 with a five-star average so uh you know thank you all very very much two people did give us four stars so you know i'm sorry that we <laughs> didn't meet your meet your uh requirements we there didn't for step the whole way up yeah i got we gotta <laughs> scrap this and start all over wow hmm. no but thank you guys for listening week one and uh, you know it's, things are only going to get better from here god willing Greg, what are we gonna what are we gonna learn about next in the the mixed martial arts world? We're, we're gonna sort of jump into the the transitional period of of sort of when when Zufa came in, and I know we kind of talked about that a little bit last week, but from when from when that came in to uh, sort of what the UFC has become now, there, there's sort of this middle period that you know you hear names that have come out of there, a lot of your your Hall of Fame or MMA legends. Mm. Um, but but th- there's a period of time where that, that people sort of, you know, forget about. I mean, yeah, you have a couple guys that are still clinging on to that, that are still fighting. But uh, it became it was it was a whole it was a very different world um, from the original UFC to, mm-hmm. to even now. But it sort of bridged that gap. Nice. You know what? One of the things that really surprised me last week, and I don't want to I don't want to recap the show too much, but you mentioned that. Uh, Ken Shamrock came out of one of those other like sort of ancillary um, uh, fighting leagues, and I, I was surprised by that. Oh yeah, I was. I mean, because if I feel like if I know who he is, this is probably like a very big person who has been big since the start, rather than you know a guy who came out of a relatively obscure, uh, rel- relatively obscure organization. Yeah, well, his timeline is sort of like. Uh... You know, King of Pancrase, which was was out of out of Asia, uh, then jumped into early UFC tournaments. You know, participated in UFC One, um, was in a, a couple of the other early tournaments. Then there was that transitional period where a lot of people know who he is when he went to WWE. Mm-hmm. Um, well, WWF at the time. I, I whatever, it doesn't matter. I'm not here to trademark their stuff. Sure. Uh, um, but but he went there for a few years, and it's actually not as long as I actually thought. I've, I looked it up probably within the last year, and he was only in the WWE for maybe 
around two years. Hmm. Uh, but it was during such a time that that's where people know his name from. Wrestling was in a huge boom. And then he transitioned back into mixed martial arts. You know, w- was a coach uh, on an early season of The Ultimate Fighter. Had a lot of memorable <laughs> lead-ups to fights with Tito Ortiz. Mm-hmm. Uh, not necessarily memorable fights, because um, usually it was him getting steamrolled. But um, he definitely, you know, definitely was sort of one of those first pioneers and one of those first faces uh, of the MMA world, which is, is crazy to say now, because you still see him out every once in a while getting trotted out there by, uh, by Bellator to keep going. Yeah. So, But is that kind of like... I saw a preview for an upcoming WW, whatever it's called now, event, and I, it's like Goldberg versus I don't I don't remember who, but it was another like legendary guy. Is that is that kind of like they're just bringing this guy out as a nod to the past and a, a hey, remember what we were? Or is there actually still so, is he still actually relevant? So he, here's what WWE does every year, and I know this is sort of off topic, but I, I dabble in the WWE world not as much as as I once had, but but I'll watch a pay-per-view here and there. I still have the WWE Network, you know. All right. Um, I'm, but... sorry. I'm sorry to hear this. I respect you a little <laughs> no, bit less ten... than I did before this. $10 a month and you get all the pay-per-views <laughs> for free every year, every all year. All right, fair so enough. So it's, it's hard to turn down. Um, but they, they trot out these old guys and and part-time guys. Like like Goldberg's going up against Brock Lesnar. It's going to be it the is. main event at WrestleMania. Okay, there it right? is. Right? Um, they trot these guys out every year because they don't trust any of the younger guys to carry a WrestleMania card. That's interesting. Like, to be the main attraction. So they bring back guys almost every year. That's why The Undertaker comes back once a year. Goldberg, his last two fights, or his last two matches, not mm. fights, whatever, predetermined. Yeah. But his last two matches have lasted a combined, like, minute 45. <laughs> like, like, and he's been the main event of two straight pay-per-views, and it's a minute 45. Yeah. Combined, his last he won he won the world title on Sunday in 21 seconds. Who did he beat for that and world title? He beat a guy named Kevin Owens. He's a young dude. He's you know not a not necessarily a household name to somebody who doesn't watch yeah, wrestling. I, I don't know who uh, he is. Yeah, he was a big independent guy, a big star for for years on the independent circuit, and then transitioned to WWE a few years ago. Um, but he had held the title for a few months, and, and he definitely has a following and, and gained a pretty good following inside the wrestling, or, the wrestling world. And then you take a guy like Goldberg, who couldn't wrestle long matches in 1998 when he was one of the biggest stars in the world, mm-hmm. and you're putting him out there in main events and just having him crush people who are going to be your future. Eventually, these old guys are going to – you're going to run out of these guys. Right. You know what I mean? There, uh, there's not maybe. enough of them anymore. Maybe I feel like uh, I, I feel like you still hear like from the guys like Ric Flair every now and then. Yeah, I mean Ric Rick Flair gets thrown around there a lot, mainly because his daughter is the current active WWE wrestler. No, no, no. Um, yeah, it, it, I mean it, it's it's very it's very strange. They love to incorporate the legends, which is great, but to continue to to, to throw these kind of matches around. It's 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 very it's very weird. It's 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 a weird time in the WWE when you have Goldberg headlining WrestleMania 33. Yeah, I don't. I was. Yeah, I think you and I have talked about this before. I don't know if we've talked about it on on any sort of air, but I was a giant wrestling fan growing up, and you know that I think it sort of grew out of it around you know 14 or so. But man, I I loved wrestling when I was a kid, and 
I remember very fondly, the, you know, every Saturday morning going over to my friends' houses and, you know, all of us would be in one place and we'd watch all the crazy wrestling stuff in the morning. And specifically, I remember when you talk about The Undertaker, I remember The Undertaker fighting the Texas Tornado, Kerry Von Erich, <laughs> and just absolutely destroying that guy. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, he's been doing it for so long. The guy's like 50... That's insane. Five? Something that's, like that? That's insane. It's it's actually ridiculous. And every year, the day after WrestleMania, there's pictures of him on crutches and airports yeah. and things like that. And it's just like, dude, it must be a really nice payday. And to only have to really work, like, I mean, he shows up on Monday Night Raw like three times a year mm -hmm. and then goes to WrestleMania. So he works like four days a year and ends up with, uh, you know, a ton of cash. You know, it's, it's very funny. It's interesting. Yeah. You mentioned being on crutches the next day. That's almost the best case scenario, especially from wrestlers of that generation who it seems like everyone is dead at this point. I saw that they just uh, they're putting uh, ravishing Rick Rude into the WW whatever Hall of Fame posthumously. And, you know, uh, Kerry Von Erich's dead and uh, British Bulldog and so on and so on and so on and so on and so on. These guys, I mean, maybe it's from the rampant drug abuse. Probably it's from the rampant drug abuse and, you know, the other things that went along with that in terms of substance abuses. But there are not long shelf lives for these wrestlers. I think one of the big reasons that you mentioned, you know, there aren't a lot of these guys around anymore is because these guys are dead. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a rough it's a rough career. I mean, like if you watch wrestling, right? It's on WWE's on twice a week. If you have a pay per view, it's on three times a week. Mm -hmm. But they do house shows, like shows that are non televised in towns all across the country and across the world, five nights a week, basically mm -hmm. from from Thursday through Tuesday, or, or really, it's probably Friday through Tuesday. They do they do shows every night. They're doing the same matches you're seeing on TV. They're doing in in you know in front of just stadiums of people. Mm -hmm. You know that that's got to take a toll on your body. And whatever they do to self medicate or even regularly medicate, it ends up putting them in bad positions. Which is actually, you know, what a lot of people sort of worry about in, in the mixed martial arts world is overworking, overtraining, and those kind of things potentially leaking into. Right. For the world of mixed martial arts, the same sort of, yeah. you know, I mean, there was, abuses. There was rampant steroid abuse, too. You, I, I would imagine those guys were almost encouraged to use steroids. You don't get, you know, you you don't just naturally look like somebody like Rick Rude does or, you know, Scott, no. you know, any of the Steiner brothers or Goldberg or anybody like that. Although I, the, Rock yeah. would, the Rock would tell you differently. Yeah, I mean... You're not getting the 22-inch pythons of Hulk Hogan yeah. uh, by drinking, by saying your prayers and eating vitamins. You know what I mean? That's not, that's not the case. And I mean, a lot of those guys are pretty open about that yeah. as they as they get older and talk about it. And if you hear them in different interviews and, and any sort of segments that they may do, um, they do talk about it. And it was it was definitely something that was, uh, I don't, I'm not going to say encouraged, but unmonitored. If yeah. that makes sense. Certainly, they they, they were basically, yeah. So until so you know they really started to break things down. You know that there's a problem when you can find a list of 100 wrestlers who died before their time. Yeah, that's not surprising. Not surprising in the least bit. 
Now, I don't know a lot of these guys. I mean, obviously, there's there's big names like, and this is just alphabetical, and I'm certainly not going to go all the way through it, but, you know, Andre the Giant and Bam Bam Bigelow. And yeah, after that, there is a Big Boss Man. I did not know Big Boss Man was dead. That's actually sad. Yeah, it's been like six years. I think it's been or longer. seven it's been years. longer than that. It's been 11 years since he died. 12 years. All right, wow. 13 years. 13 he went years in, since he died. He went in... Man, he went into the, the Hall of Fame two years ago, posthumously, something like that. Yeah, I mean, page one is literally just the A's and B's. You, you know, Brian Pillman, the British Bulldog. Oh, man, this is, this is, it's unbelievable. This is Chris Benoit. I did not know Chris Benoit died. There's, that was 10 years okay, ago. Okay, hang on, hang on. Maybe you didn't, I did, know, maybe Chris I didn't know Chris Benoit died? I, don't, I didn't remember Chris <laughs> Benoit died. Um, maybe Chris I, Benoit died in one of the most horrific ways possible. Like, he basically went insane, may or may not have killed his entire family, and then himself. Oh, right. Yes, yeah. that that horrible tragedy that I blocked out over the last ten years. Yeah. Understandable. I could see why you'd block it out. There's another one of the famous Von Erich families. I think there was like five of I, those brothers. David Von Erich is dead. I think they're pretty yeah. much all dead at this point. There's only there's only one that's still alive, Kevin Von Erich. David Von Erich died in Japan. Uh, Kerry Von Erich killed himself. One, they had a younger brother who wasn't really a wrestler. He killed himself. He was like in the business, but like wasn't big enough to actually wrestle. Mm-hmm. I, I, I watched a documentary. The WWE Network has a great amount of documentaries, <laughs> if you couldn't tell. Yeah. Uh, who uh, you got? You've got Earthquake. He's gone. You got Eddie Guerrero. He's gone, and I'm just, that's through three pages. That's There's a guy named Gary Albright who's dead who looks, he looks to me, like, a, in this picture, a combination of Stone Cold and, and um, the guy who we talked about earlier, who's Bill Goldberg. <laughs> that's what he looks like. If those two had a kid, it would be Gary Albright. And yeah, if, I've if never the kid heard of Gary Albright, but I can imagine. Yeah, if the kid was also older than them. Um <laughs> One real quick thing before we go back to the, the W, uh, I mean, the MMA. Um, you mentioned documentaries. I watched an amazing documentary this week. Um, and actually, I heard uh, I heard about it first on a show that we both listened to, uh, Doug Benson's podcast, Doug Loves Movies. I forget who it was that mentioned it, but it was, uh, it's on Netflix right now. It's called The Barkley Marathons. Absolutely awesome. I was captivated from start to finish. I encourage everyone to check it out and I, I it made me want to know what happens every single year thing is awesome it's this this crazy See, this crazy hundred they, they call it a hundred mile marathon but it's actually closer to 120 through the woods in the in, in, it's a southern state i forget which one just it's awesome everybody go watch it right now listen to the let's listen to the rest of the show then go watch it first of all you have to be insane to run a 120 mile marathon they are number one they are yeah. Number two, number two, I saw that on Netflix, like while I was scrolling through, and just assumed it was something to do with Charles Barkley, so I ignored it. <laughs> Dude, um, I, watch it the first opportunity you get. I was literally, and I, I, I like documentaries, but I'm not the world's biggest documentary guy. I was captivated from the first five minutes, and I just, I wish it was longer. I could have, and I watched it at like twelve o'clock one night too, so. It was, it was awesome. Good, so you got a ton of sleep that night. Well, it, it's not very long. It's, it's probably like 90 minutes, 100 minutes tops. But, yeah, That's it's, it's crazy. And every single one of these people is like these hyper-competitive. I was shocked by how many academics were in it. 
um, a lot of like PhD people, a lot of a lot of professors, people with who have to set these like incredibly high standard goals for themselves, and they just don't let anything get in their way. But yeah, awesome. Go watch it. Back to the W. <laughs> there you go. I, apparently, <laughs> my subconscious just desperately wants to talk about the WWE because, sadly, I could for the next couple of hours with all the childhood memories I have. Hulk Hogan versus I'm sure. the Ultimate Warrior at WrestleMania being one of the greatest matches I've ever seen in my life. But, um, <laughs> but yes, back back to the world of mixed martial arts. Yeah, I mean, so so in transitioning, once once more state you know, state-initiated sanctions came in and, and getting cleared to, to be legal in different states. The weight classes is where everything sort of became uh, more prominent. You know what I mean? So they started splitting guys up, more even matchups. You're not getting the 600-pound guy versus the 180-pound guy. Less freak show fights. Um, and the UFC started with a pretty a pretty broad range uh, of weight classes that they would eventually they would eventually drop a couple lower weight classes for a few years hmm. um, because they didn't just didn't have enough talent in there. And gotcha. this is sort of where you see the rise of guys like Chuck Liddell, Randy Couture, Tim Sylvia, Andre Arlovsky, Josh Barnett, um, some of your more high profile guys, a couple guys who are still doing it now. Uh, the Tito Ortiz reign at light heavyweight. Um, you know, all the different battles in in there. Mm-hmm. It was definitely a weird time, but it was also sort of a crappy time because at one point in the heavyweight division, you know, Andre Arlovsky and Tim Sylvia fought like four times in a row. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was very weird. It felt like almost every other pay-per-view, those two guys were battling it out. I specifically remember, you know, being a freshman in college, and on a Saturday night, one night, there, there wasn't anything going on. Mm-hmm. We went to a local establishment and, and paid a cover charge to watch Ken Shamrock and Tito Ortiz fight. Mm-hmm. And then Arlovsky and, and Tim Sylvia go at it. And Arlovsky, Tim Sylvia may have been the most boring fight I've ever seen. It, <laughs> it, it, was, it was legitimately two guys just standing in front of each other, occasionally throwing one or two punches and not really doing any damage. Gotcha. Um, I want to talk about this for just a second. Was, just a second, because every once in a while, when you send one of these recap emails, you know, you say to me like, "This was incredible. Like this fight was incredibly boring," or blah blah blah. To you, what is the difference between a super exciting fight and what makes something an incredibly boring fight? So the biggest the biggest thing when it comes to exciting fights is like guys, you know, actually engaging. Gotcha. You know. Um, some of the criticism that you get with like a Floyd Mayweather boxing match is like, Oh, he doesn't really engage. He just Mm kind of dances around, defends blocks, and then occasionally throws a combination here and there. Um, Those are the kind of fights that when you get them in WWE can be in the UFC, um, they can, they can be less than entertaining. Like Mm -hmm. for example, this past weekend, the big criticism of UFC 209, right? Outside of Khabib Nurmagomedov not making weight and basically costing himself a huge opportunity in the lightweight division going for the interim title and disappointing basically every MMA fan out there Mm. um, because that fight got pulled. Outside of that, the the fight that replaced them, the co-main event was between a guy named Lando Venata and David Tamor. These two guys went at each other for 15 straight minutes, you know, throwing crazy combinations, uh, engaging in the fight for the full 15 minutes, right? Mm. 
you know, nobody got knocked out. It was a really, it was, it was, you know, went to the judges, but everybody left after they watched that fight was like, wow, we need to see more of both of those guys because both of them were very entertaining. They didn't, they weren't worried about getting, you know, knocked out or hurt. They, they were out there to try and, you know, impose their will on the other guy. Sure. Then you transition to the main event, which everyone was, I mean, especially in the MMA world, was hyped for because Stephen Wonderboy Thompson and Tyron Woodley, they fought at UFC 205. They were the co-main event, New York City, Conor McGregor, that whole big, you know, Mm -hmm. hullabaloo. And they fought to a majority draw in favor of, uh, well, technically it's a draw, so nobody won. But Woodley kept his belt. And they went at it for five rounds. You know, there were times where you thought Thompson was going to be choked out or knocked out. And then there was other rounds where he sort of controlled all the action. It was back and forth. Well, on on Saturday night, they could have basically put you to sleep with the amount. They threw less punches in the entire fight than they did in one round of the first fight, if that makes any sense. Gotcha. You think, like, there was, there was you think such timidity. Yeah, you think that was a conscious decision from them, where they was this a, an instance where they're trying to change up their style because the other person has seen them go one way before, or is it just this is a circumstance thing? I I definitely think that's part of it. There, there's no doubt about it, um, especially from the part of Tyron Woodley. Mm. Um, I, I think that Thompson was afraid of getting taken down um, because you know Woodley was a D1 wrestler, like he's he's a legitimate you know, legitimate wrestler and grappler. Mm. Thompson's a point karate guy. He, he came from kickboxing and karate. He doesn't have the ground skills. So Thompson was very timid. Didn't want to throw a lot of, like, low kicks and things like that that can get grabbed and taken down. So, so he played a weird outside game where he did a lot of fainting and not really throwing. Mm. And Woodley just kind of stood there and didn't really do much. He faked a couple punches. Now, last 30 seconds of the fight, he caught Thompson with a big right hand, knocked him down. You know, Thompson got back up and then got knocked down again. You know, then it went to the horn and the judges gave the fight to, to Woodley because Thompson didn't do enough to, to win that fight. Unless you, I mean, they used the, Nevada's weird. The <laughs> yes, approved MMA counsel, <laughs> the approved MMA counselor, whoever makes these rules, made these rule changes a couple months ago that said, you know, 10-8 rounds and different things were going to be more prevalent. Certain things now matter more than others. But at the beginning of the pay-per-view, they showed this disclaimer saying, hey, these rules have not been adopted in Nevada yet. We're still playing based off the old rules. Uh. If that's the case, if that's the case, one of the biggest things is octagon control, right? So what octagon control essentially is, is being able to dictate where the fight goes. And that's what Thompson did for basically three of the five rounds which you could say that would win him the fight. But he didn't do anything with the octagon control is the biggest problem. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, Wood- Woodley was very inactive, and and he didn't really do anything to wow you, but you didn't do anything to to, to give the judges a reason to, to give you the title over the champion. So it, it was a very boring – like, I mean, I think in the first round there was maybe like five punches thrown at most. Yeah. Like, it was it – was, Brutal to sit through and watch as as me and my buddy were sitting here watching the the main event. It was it was, it was a tough one. How often are main events that disappointing? Because I mean, I feel like this is the uh, kind of thing we see in the boxing world a lot, where you know 
there's this incredibly hyped up main event and somebody is somebody just knocks the other person out in a round and a half and everybody paid $120 for a fight that lasted like 6 minutes it 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 certainly varies i mean i know when it's a knockout like that in in spectacular fashion in a short amount of time people are less inclined to complain mm-hmm. than if it's a 20 watching a guy dance around for 25 minutes and not do anything uh i think it happens it probably happens maybe 40% of the time, and that's a complete rough guess. I mean, I've watched a lot of a lot of fights over the past couple of years, mm-hmm. and those cards and those main events certainly have some some issues occasionally. But it really all depends on the matchup. You kind of made you kind of made a great point when you said these guys know each other, and I think that really kind of played into you know how timid both of them were to really to really you know throw. A lot of people are placing. More blame on Woodley for not attacking as much, but I mean the, the the blame can go both ways very very easily. You know Thompson wasn't exactly trying to to do anything outside of back Woodley down, but he wasn't throwing anything, so it was it was really really tough. And you've mentioned that it's it's hard to imagine seeing a third fight here. Yeah, I mean with with just how disappointing that was and. At this point, the first one was a draw, so nobody really won. Mm-hmm. The second fight, Woodley wins on a weird decision because the fight was weird. I don't know if the UFC is going to invest any more money in this matchup, at least not right now, it, because it doesn't make sense. As, as entertaining and as awesome the first as the first fight was, the second fight was just re- heavily criticized for, from all parties, including the president of the UFC, Dana White. Okay, and I'm going to show my total... MMA ignorance here, and uh, I know that a fight can end with a tap out. What are the other means in which a fight can end? So, a couple different ways. Knockout, which okay. is either someone's completely unconscious, you know. Um, I know referee decision is another one, right? Refs can end a fight. Yeah, yeah, the, the ref can stop at any point, and that's considered a TKO, where, yeah, the guy might still be conscious, but he's not defending himself. Uh, he's just getting battered. You hear the phrase uh, intelligently defending himself thrown okay. around a lot. Um, so when a guy is on the ground, his hands may be in front of his face, but he's not doing anything. He's getting hit pretty bad. The refs will stop it. Um, doctor stoppages, they don't happen as much in MMA. Um, point and yeah, a really big example uh, from this past weekend, um, Mirsad Bektich and Darren Elkins. One of the craziest comeback wins in, in UFC history. Mm-hmm. I was going to say recent history, but I would say history in general. Mirsad Bekic, undefeated guy, uh, big prospect, you know, undefeated in his UFC career. Both guys ranked in the top 15. Bekic just worked him for two rounds. Opened up a gigantic gash over the right eye of Darren Elkins. I mean, if you Google that cut, it, it was it was bad. It was one of the worst cuts I've seen in a while uh, in the UFC. And they put Vaseline on it in between every round. And mm. it's the second it got hit, I mean, it was yeah. just pouring blood again. But the, he he survived through that. Bektich got tired in the third round, and he hit him with a punch from behind as, as they were getting up to their feet and knocked him out cold. And it was it was crazy. But, but So doctor stoppages can happen. They don't happen. They don't happen as often. 
Um, obviously, if somebody breaks a bone or something like that, that, that can stop a fight too. But really, it's submission, knockout, or if you choke somebody unconscious, that, that's really it outside of uh, it going to the judges' scorecards. Okay, so how about, how about in, you know, this will be Pride California. This will be our main event for the, the next match. Gotcha. Is uh, we go Woodley Thompson. I imagine they're going to, they're, they need a little bit of time to rest because I just fought. So we'll give them, <laughs> we'll give them two weeks. Um, they're going to fight again in two weeks. Pride California, my, my uh, institution for anyone who doesn't know. And uh, fight goes on until somebody's knocked out or taps out. Yeah, I mean, you, you could do that. Uh, I'm going to. I, I don't know where that's getting sanctioned. I'm sanctioned. I guess California, like you said. Exactly. You can do <laughs> You're going to sanction it? Okay. I'm going to sanction it. Um, uh, my dogs are completely in on this. I think uh, you're going to sign <laughs> off on it. And I think that I guess I think that does it. I think we're set at that point. Yeah, I mean, I'm I mean, the biggest, them the biggest, <laughs> that's fine. I'm sure they'll, I'm sure they'll dive right in. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I know, I, I know that sounds in theory like a great idea, but the problem then becomes if, okay, we get into to round five, or round seven, or round nine, these guys are going to be exhausted, and you're not going to see any real technique at that point. You're not going to see any real power necessarily, depending on how tired guys may get. Uh, I do like it in theory. It's, it's being implemented in uh, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu tournaments. Oh, really? There's a, there's, a new, there's a new scoring system where there's no knockouts, obviously, but basically there's, there's a tournament uh, out of California. I think there's been 11 of them. It's called mm-hmm. the Eddie Bravo Invitational. And, UFC Fight Pass has them live now. I think you can go back and watch like numbers four through eleven if you wanted to. But but basically, you know, it's a ten minute ten minute one round thing. You know, you either tap them out or it goes to like an overtime situation where you're put in bad positions and you try to get tapped. So they want to finish. They want something to end definitively and not go to a scorecard. Mm-hmm. I think that's tougher in the the mixed martial arts world. Demanding people get knocked out is very difficult, uh, especially because of the CTE correlation and things like that. So, so I, I do like your idea. I just don't know how we put it in place. Uh, just by saying it's in place and then having them fight under those rules. <laughs> all right. Hey, that's up to you. Uh, it seems like I solved the problem is all I'm getting at. Um, I don't know. It's just it seems it seems like the only way. That's the only way that. Obviously, it's not going to happen, but that's the only way that a third fight in this little series makes sense because nobody wants to watch these guys have a third fight and have it go to the judges again. I don't. Yeah, I don't think anybody's interested in seeing the judges decide a third, a third set of these of, of these guys going. It's just, it's just they need to move on and not hold a weight class hostage uh, like the 185 division in the current UFC. Oh. All right. Um, so we fight night 106 this weekend. What are we looking forward to? Uh, really the, the, the main event should be a pretty good tilt. Um, you have, you have MMA legend, uh, who sort of came up in that time of, we were talking about earlier with the transitional period of the UFC Vitor Belfort, mm-hmm. uh, fighting back in his home country of Brazil. He's the number nine ranked middleweight. Going up against Kelvin Gastelum, uh, Ultimate Fighter winner, um, 
tries to fight at 170, kept missing weight, kept missing weight. So eventually the UFC was like, listen, you're fighting at 185, and that's just, that's just what we're doing. You don't have any options anymore because you can't keep missing weight and costing us fights and messing up our cards. Like, it's, right. it's, just, not, it's just not in the works. So yeah. they, end up, they end up matching these guys up. Uh, Gaston looked great in his last fight. Um, he absolutely worked Tim Kennedy, who was an excellent, excellent MMA uh, practitioner. Re- he retired after that fight um, in Toronto at, at, I believe it was UFC 206. Um, but Gastelum just absolutely put on a striking display and, and really tired Kennedy out. Now, Belfort is on, like, pole 17 of 18 uh, in, if you want to uh, do a golf analogy. Mm-hmm. Um, he's lost three in a row. He's, you know, still has knockout power. There's no doubt about it, but he has not looked good. Um, he's not looked good recently, especially in his um, – especially in his post-testosterone replacement therapy exemption gotcha. date. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's it's been up and down, and he's sort of at the end uh, of the line. So it's a good matchup. It's a big win if Gaslam can get it, but that's that, that's sort of where your, your main event is going to sit. So you just said something that interests me quite a bit now because it's something that I've never really thought of, and that is how does a fight come to be? And you said you mentioned that you know the UFC matched these two guys up. How how is a fight set? Who decides you know this this person's fighting this person? Uh, there's a matchmaker essentially. Um, it, for the longest time, it was Joe Silva. Um, he recently relinquished his title at the end of last year, and now it's a guy named Sean Shelby. Okay. Uh, there's another guy who does the lighter weights, but there's essentially one guy that puts these guys together. I mean. They have rankings for each of each of these systems. Like, if you ever read any of the previews and things that I do, or really any article, yeah, of course. Um, they they put they put those in there, um, and there's rankings for every division. They rank the top fifteen um, on anyone underneath the champion, and they try to match it up that way. The UFC is weird though because of this new sort of transitional world where we're going to, you know, the the more entertainment based stuff. The rankings mean less and less. Yeah. It's, the matchups aren't necessarily coming from the matchups aren't necessarily coming from, Hey, you, you've won this many matches in a row or you've won this many fights in a row. You should fight for the title next. Like it's, it's a lot different. Yeah. Cause I never quite understood, you know, when I read your previews, it's like, you know, n- number, the number one contender is fighting like some unranked guy or, number 14 or something like that and you know number 14 is uh, is 9 and 0 with nine knockouts and number 2 here is yeah 22 and 6 or something like that it all just seems very arbitrary well a lot of it's based on streaks and time spent in the UFC so like ah. you have you have a, a guy like uh, you know Shogun Hua who's fighting in the co-main event who's been in the UFC for a very long time he's mm. I believe a multiple time light heavyweight champion. Uh, I can't remember if he won it once or twice, but he definitely held it um, at least once because he, he he lost it to John Jones. So, I mean, there is, there's a definite, you know, he's been there for so long. He loses a couple of fights. He may drop from, you know, three to nine. Then he wins a fight or two fights and he jumps back up. Whereas the guy he's fighting, John Volante, he's ranked number 12. He hasn't been in the UFC that long. He's had his ups and downs, but 
he sort of just broke into those rankings. The problem is, is they don't go based off the rankings enough when they're making these these matchups. You know, so you right. see a guy who is nine and zero. You know, like you said, and he's ranked number fourteen. Well, how does that work? Well, that's his cumulative record from you know all of his fights leading up to the UFC to now. So, ah, got you. It's not necessarily inside the UFC. Gotcha. See, I wish that there was. I wish they would have like a second set of rankings, kind of like conference rankings in in basketball or football, college basketball or conference or football. Like, okay, this guy is this overall, but in conference they are this. Yeah, I mean, there are there are definitely websites that that do that and have their own rankings. Um, not necessarily rankings, but they'll they'll break it down record wise. Like, oh, he's you know sixteen and four, and it overall is seven and one in the UFC. Like those kind of things. That that definitely is something that's out there. Um, but I do I do I do get what you're saying. Like where if it was broken down a little bit more, as opposed to just hey, here's number seven versus number six. Um, gotcha. It's it, it's it's going to be a whole different ball game now though because. The goal isn't to see who's the best fighter at this point. It, the goal is to, the goal is to who puts, uh, you know, enough butts in the seat yeah. and gets enough people to buy these pay-per-views. That's why George St. Pierre is back and he's fighting Michael Bisping. He's getting a title shot yeah. in a division he didn't fight in for, after three <laughs> and a half years of being off. Like sure. George St. Pierre didn't fight at 185. He fought at 170. He was a champion for a very long time, but he didn't fight 15 pounds heavier. Like. Mm. So the fact that he's coming back and getting that immediate title shot in a different division over top of a guy like Yoel Romero, who is on an absolute tear, uh, you know, undefeated in the UFC. There's a couple things here and there, you know, that, that people will question with Yoel Romero. Um, the, the Tim Kennedy fight where he sat on the stool for like an extra 30 seconds in between rounds uh-huh. sort of comes to mind. But the guy murks people. He just... Dude, his, his 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 last fight, he knocked out former champion Chris Weidman with a flying knee. It just obliterated him. Like it's, I mean, there is that. There's no doubt in my mind that guy should fight next. The problem is, is he doesn't sell well. Yeah. He doesn't speak uh, the best English in the world. You know, he, he's 37, 38 years old. He's not super marketable. Um, so. The guys at the top who need to make four billion dollars back—they don't really care. You know what I mean? Well, it is, it is a they business. They want—they want somebody that's going to sell. It is a business. I don't know uh, how. I'm not familiar with George St. Pierre's body composition, yeah. but I can tell you that uh, those those 15 pounds aren't always good weight. I'm watching, I'm watching a the new season of Survivor, for instance, and this season there's a lot of players who are re- returning from previous years. A lot of those players have put on those ten to twenty pounds, and it is not good weight. So, again, Jeez. I don't know about George St. Pierre's body composition, but that's uh, the extra weight is not always positive. Now it'll get put on in a in a in a very uh, smart way. I mean, he was always a guy that was in good shape, and he looks like he's in good shape now. I mean, honestly. Um, from the different press conferences that we've seen him at and those mm. types of things. Like, he looks like he's ready to go, you know, sooner rather than later. Like, he's he hasn't exactly, like, it's not like he fell out of uh, practice with keeping his nutrition, you know, in check. Gotcha. All right, before we move on, any other interesting matches on this card we should talk about real quick? Uh, Edson Marbosa and Benil Daryush, they're the third fight um, from the from the top. 
pretty good lightweight matchup. Barboza is a monster with his kicks. Leg kicks uh, are sort of his uh, calling card. Mm-hmm. Ended multiple fights where he's thrown leg kicks and guys have quit from there, um, which is absurd. Like, the fact that he can end fights by kicking a guy hard enough in the leg where the guy's like, ah, I'm good. I don't, <laughs> don't want to do this anymore. Um, I feel like if anybody kicked done me in the most- leg, I would just be, okay, you win. It's over. Yeah. I'm good. I don't, I, don't, I don't need that. Like, if somebody kicked me in the leg at the grocery store, I would let them go in front of me. Yeah, exactly. And imagine a guy who's specifically training for years and years and years to kick you as hard as he can doing it. It definitely does not feel good. Here's, here's um, a question, and I know that – I apologize for this. This is just how my brain works with random digressions. No, but, you're fine. But – so I'm just thinking about the physical act of kicking another human being in the leg as hard as you can – what are the most gruesome injuries that you've seen personally? And personally, I mean, you know, while watching things you actually watch, not things you read about. What what are just the, the most horrific things that you've seen happen? Because it seems like it'd be pretty easy if you kick somebody hard enough to break their leg in half. I haven't seen anybody break somebody's leg in half from well, not in half, actually but you know kicking I mean. them. But I've seen guys throw kicks and break their leg in half. Like somebody, uh, the the biggest example, the most recent example of that happening is Anderson Silva, Chris Weidman, the rematch, the much anticipated rematch, you know, um, Anderson Silva trying to get his belt back after he got knocked out while he was mocking Weidman in the ring. Sure. Anderson threw a leg kick. Weidman checked it by picking his leg up. So Anderson would kick his knee. Anderson's right leg shattered, oh. broken half, fight over. Um, that's, that's one that comes to mind. A lot of times what you'll see, and you can Google these, um, Uh from leg kicks, you see a lot of swelling and bruising. Um, the one, the one that comes to mind was Uriah Faber, Jose Aldo, um, for, for the, I believe 155 title. It might've been 145. Um, but actually it was definitely 145. Uh, but Aldo just battered Faber's legs. His thigh was so ridiculously damaged at the end of at the end of that fight and the pictures he put up on Instagram the next day were just brutal to see but that's what you normally will get um you know occasionally you'll get a cut on a leg Mark Hunt Alistair Overeem this past weekend Mark Hunt threw a kick you know first round Anderson or Anderson uh, uh Overeem Overeem. Overeem checks it, and he kicks him right on top of the knee. And originally, Hunt thought he broke his tibia. He ended up fighting and oh. getting knocked out like later in the second round. or th- Actually, third round, he got knocked out. Um, but as soon as he hit his knee, it cut his leg to where blood was shooting out of it as he was fighting. Like hmm. I'm not talking about it was just running down his leg. He was doing that, but at first, it was shooting out of it. So um, there, can, there, there are definitely some hazards in the, in the kicking game. Uh, that can come about. All right. Uh, all right. Aren't you glad you asked that question? I am captain. Yeah, I am absolutely thrilled to have the knowledge that I now have about some of those <laughs> heinous things that you just talked about. Uh, so that's we're gonna we're gonna end the MMA lesson, as it were, here, and uh, just talk about some other stuff that's going on. Um. So interesting with the website, Gregory. Uh, we had a, we have a gentleman who joined the website this week. Uh, his name's John McConnell. 
and john is is writing about american ninja warrior for us and he is you know he's someone who's partaken in the offense and all of that and this is i'm not sure how familiar you are with american ninja warrior but this is by all accounts it's a very tight-knit very close community so i i thought well this is going to be an easy way to get some cheap hits for the website uh, because that's what I think about during the day. And I took Greg, uh, I took John's story, and I, I, I tweeted it at a number of the, you know, the more, like the, the decision makers, the, the opinion makers in the, the American Ninja Warrior world. Uh, you know, Matt Eisman, who is one of the announcers and recently won Celebrity Apprentice, and Akbar Ajabi Amila, who played for the Packers, and Joe the Weatherman Morosky. I actually know a lot about American Ninja Warrior. I like it quite a bit. Yeah. Uh, and um, and uh, we, I thought, you know, this is, like I said, this is going to be a cheap way to get hits. I'm going to get a bunch of retweets. And uh, over the first night, I was pretty disappointed. All we got, we got what we got a like from the Weatherman, Joe Morosky. And it doesn't, you know, that a like doesn't really help us. But... Today, things are picking up a little bit. We finally got a retweet from, uh, well, the first of the retweets that we got was from Jesse Graff, who is one of the, the most talented women in the sport today, and she is also the the uh, stunt double for Melissa Benoit on Supergirl. So we got a retweet from her, and uh, now things are picking up a little bit with the activity for the article, so I'm pretty excited about that. Yo, let me tell you what. When I saw that article, because I check the site every day, sure. I do that. When I when I saw that article, I have never been more excited to read something in my life. Oh yeah, I'm I'm a I'm a big American Ninja Warrior guy. I watch nice. every season, every every year. I've been watching it since like season four, maybe. Yeah. Uh, whatever year Brent Stephenson Brent Stephenson was the furthest guy to ever make it. You know, furthest American to ever go. Right? Yeah, he made it past the, the, uh, the yeah three. the cliffhanger exactly. Yeah. So, so I've watched it religiously every episode, every season since then, um, and like I was super intrigued at reading that article. I was pumped, like to just just kind of get like sort of a uh, an inside look at that world because that that's a show that I I really enjoy and, and actually can't wait to, for it to come back. Yeah, no, I just uh, we actually we had a couple of people who were going to write about. American Ninja Warrior for the website, and the one girl who was going to do it, who was going to do a recap episode of the All-Star, a recap article of the All-Star episode kind of fell through as, you know, it happens sometimes. So that was a little bit of a bummer, but John is a good guy, and, uh, you know, I definitely, I look forward to getting the opportunity to talk to him about exactly what goes on, because, you know, like anything, there is so much going on behind the scenes that we're not seeing on television. Oh, I can only imagine. So... Thank you, Jesse Graff, for retweeting the article today, and uh, the rest of you guys better get off your butts and do so, too. Matt Eisman Matt <laughs> yeah. is a guy yeah, I, I want to have on the podcast. Yeah, dude, he's great. I've heard him on a ton of different stuff, and I like him as, as the, the basically main play-by-play guy um, for American Ninja Warrior, so that'd be, that'd be great. Yeah, I think Matt Eisman is awesome. I, uh, I didn't watch Celebrity Apprentice this year just because of some of the – you know the the nonsense going on behind the scenes, but I read a lot of the recaps, and I think and I grew a complete newfound appreciation for Matt Eisman, who you know was someone I knew going into this, but after reading everything, much like me, he's a giant Harry Potter nerd, much like you know other people as well here, um, and uh, so awesome guy, and a guy who I want to, and apparently was a doctor, uh, went to med school, really, so. 
somebody I think is awesome, and I, I very much want to have on the show moving forward. And uh, let's see, who, uh, who else has not retweeted it? Uh, I tweeted it to Matt Eisman, Akbar Baja, Biamila, Flip Rodriguez, Jesse Graff, Moravsky, and J.J. Woods. So the rest of these guys have to get off their butts and, and retweet it. Yeah, let's go. Website. I mean, it's, it's a great article. Like, if anybody hasn't read it, it's, and if you're even into it a little bit, it's really it's a really interesting sort of take on on his, like, journey to yeah. American Ninja Warrior and kind of the results that he had. Yeah, the impression I get is that we're going to get a lot more of kind of uh, a lot of more articles about people who you know we we aren't familiar with who haven't made it to television, but and have it be more than just you know what went on, kind of like what John wrote about what it means to him. Because this is what is interesting about American Ninja Warrior is it it changes it changes a lifestyle. It it isn't an event. You really have to live that lifestyle in order to be good at it. And that is the the super healthy, super you know, eating incredibly well, training incredibly hard, pushing your body to limits that you didn't think it could achieve. So yeah, I, I look forward to seeing what we have coming forward in that series. Yeah, dude, that'll be great. Can I say something controversial to you, Gregory, on another topic? Feel feel free. So I've uh, I've watched. I get a lot of you know, Pac-10, Pac-12 basketball out here, and. I've grown to really, really not like one of my favorite announcers that, uh, you know, for years and years and years, one of my favorite announcers, I've grown to really not like and actively cringe anytime I tune into a program and Bill Walton is the announcer. Well, because it's become a gimmick. Like, he doesn't talk about basketball anymore. It's it's a shtick, man. Like, uh, I listen to a ton of podcasts, and there's a really popular sports podcast that I listened to that had him as their guest mm. this week, and it like it's nonsensical. Like exactly. they're not answering questions about stuff. Like you know, ah, it's hilarious. Bill Walton, he's crazy. But like, come on, dude. Like answer answer a question. They're asking you about the Blazers, and like you know when you were so good there, all your times at UCLA, and you're talking about like you know, walking around the beach in San Diego when you were 14, like, no offense, man, I don't really want to hear about that. I, I want to hear you talk about your experience, like, playing in the NBA. No, exactly. I'm, I'm watching him do play-by or color commentary for a game. Heaven forbid he was doing play-by-play. Doing color commentary for a game. And, you know, instead of talking about what's going on and what's happening in this game, I'm listening to him talk about some book he just read. Well, this is this becomes the problem with, with guys who become almost like self-aware. Yeah. Yes, uh, that's true. He, he he's like self-aware of his popularity and that people tuned in for him. So now he's like turning it on, if that makes sense. It becomes it becomes more about him and like, "Oh, I wear tie-dye shirts." You yeah. know what I mean? Like I'm I saw crazy. the Grateful Dead 74 times. Yeah. yeah. Like it's it it becomes more about that than than actually like talking about the game, which I guess if you're into the entertainment value of it, like that's cool, but I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't have, I don't have the. I don't patience. know if you remember this, but there was a, a version of the NHL hockey series one year where the the play by play and stuff was just like random nonsense, and that is, and I mean, I kind of liked it at the time because I was young and I was like, oh, this is different, this is funny. Uh. 
I would hate it now. Uh, but that's kind of what Bill Walton is. It's just I, I don't need stream of consciousness stuff. Tell me about that. Tell me about what's going on in the basketball game I'm watching. Yeah. And he was doing it, uh, it, oh god yeah it's so bad it's just so bad and he, he if I have to listen to this League of Champions nonsense I get it you went to UCLA you uh, UCLA has accomplished a lot the the Pac-10 Pac-12 whatever it is in this given moment it is an incredible conference which are, with a rich history other conferences are good too get over it ah oh, god that's when I hate when people want to battle about what conference is better. Like, yeah, okay, this year this conference may be better, but next year a different conference is going to be better. Like, we don't – you can't say that this is the best conference of all time. It, yeah. it, doesn't, it, it doesn't do anything. I, that's why when guys, when guys get into arguments about the Big Ten versus the SEC in football, like, yeah, okay, the SEC's been great for the last ten years. Mm-hmm. Was, was the SEC that great last year? Mm, not really, and the Big Ten was pretty good. They had three teams that were, you know, above average. Yeah. You know, it's 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 very the whole conference debate on which conference is better is very very unappealing. You know who else has really suffered after, as you said, sort of becoming self-aware of his own popularity? A guy I loved a long time ago, and now it's just entirely insufferable, is Mike Mayock doing his NFL analogy and NFL draft stuff. I can't stand him anymore. He, yeah, there's, he's aware he's there's popular. a certain part. Yeah, there's a certain part about him where like they go to the same well over and over again. It's like Mel Kiper. It's mm. the same well over and over and over again because that's what originally got them to that point. So then they overdo it, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's just and interestingly today, Mayock's name has come up as a potential general manager candidate for the Washington Redskins because get him in there apparently they're that last regime wasn't dysfunctional enough so let's get Mike Mayock in there um yeah I like I'm torn on this because I I have concerns about what happens to the NFL network if Mike Mayock leaves but Man, if he were to take over the Redskins I can't imagine that would be anything but a disaster they're going to be absolutely yearning for a junk a drunk scott mclaughlin to take back over <laughs> it's the, the redskins are the craziest franchise in like sports it's it's weird they just love to just self-implode constantly like from from shanahan mismanaging rg3 to to yeah. this whole situation with scott mcclellan or whatever like it's it's insane. It's insane to see how quickly they've dissolved. Like they've lost basically their entire receiving core outside of I can't think of his name, but he was a rookie last year and had a pretty good year. Well, they have Jameson Crowder um, and Josh and jo- Dawson, and they did sign they signed Terrell Pryor yeah. from the the Browns today. Yeah. Okay. So so they, they've tried to rebuild a little bit by getting rid of some of those older guys, but you know Kirk Cousins clearly isn't happy because he won't just pay him. Like yeah. I, I don't I don't understand. I don't understand what goes on in any of their meetings and then how they decide on things. Like, Kirk Cousins is not Tom Brady, right? We know that. But he's a serviceable enough starter that a lot of teams would take in the NFL. Kirk Cousins is more than serviceable. He is one of the most underrated quarterbacks in football. 
even better. This, that makes my point even even better because, like, let's commit to a guy for once. So, like, yeah. what are you wait? Like, what are we waiting for? If you're the Redskins, and I'm fine with it because I'm an Eagles fan, so whatever. Redskins keep keep being dumb, but like, I, I don't know what Dan Snyder's looking for. Does he think he's going to find some magic potion where he gets, mm. you know? Four superstars that he can put together to to be a champion, like it just doesn't make any sense. There's no building in that franchise. It's like, all right, we're good this year, so like next year we're just going to stop the straw. Yeah, Cousins was one big play away from throwing for five thousand yards this year. Uh, I actually, I if I wanted prior to a resign with the Browns for selfish reasons, but but I I certainly understand why he would go to this this Washington team. I was surprised. Originally reported as an eight million dollar deal, it's actually a six million dollar deal with two million in incentives. But it's clear that he took this one year deal, went to play with the best quarterback he could find in the best situation he could find, hoping to cash in uh, in free agency next year. We actually, at the same time, we learned that our you know our beloved Philadelphia Eagles made a, quite a Splash in free agency yesterday by signing Alshon Jeffrey away from the Bears, reported as a one-year $14.5 million deal. It's actually a one-year deal worth $9.5 million with $4.5 million in incentives. So it's a much better contract than I thought it was. Yeah, I, I, I mean, obviously it's hard to be like, I hate the Alshon Jeffrey signing. Mm-hmm. No, I'm a big fan of it. You get him, you put him in yet another contract year. Right. Uh, I mean, as long as he stays off the injured list and, and doesn't get mixed up in any sort of suspensions, I think I think it's going to be a great addition. Um, it made the tour. It made me a little bit happier about the Tory Smith signing. Yes, agreed. Uh, dude, that came across the wire, and then like 85 people in my at my job were like, "Oh my God, you see, we signed Tory Smith," and I was like, "He's terrible." I mean, not terrible, but no, he's kind of terrible. Yeah. He's kind of terrible. He was like, one, one of the five uh, lowest-rated receivers by PFF last year, another one actually giving the Eagles three of the top five lowest-rated receivers, joining Nelson Aguilar and uh, Darrell Green-Beckham. But, yeah, he's he drops 25%. of. The, he's another guy who can't catch the football. Yeah, it's awesome that yeah. he, he gets deep once in a while. And I like it. But like you said, like him a lot more knowing that Jordan Matthews and Alshon Jeffrey are also there. Right, exactly. It gives you an actual receiving core. If Torrey Smith was your big splash, I would have been very disappointed with yesterday. Yeah, I don't think he's I don't think he's anywhere near as as good as uh, some of the people I've heard talk about uh, no, talk about this signing or acting. He's not, and it's interesting because you know it seemed like the Eagles had agreed to terms with Kenny Britt, uh, who went on to sign with the Browns for like four four relatively big contract. I forget what it was exactly four four thirty two and change or something. Um, and so I was pretty disappointed. I, I was disappointed when I woke up and you know yesterday morning, and I saw that Britt had signed with the Browns while we let we were left with Tory Smith. Now, obviously, yeah, I felt better after the Alshon Jeffrey thing. The one year deal is a mixed bag. Uh, it kind of guarantees that you're going to get this guy. You're, he's going to be focused. He's going to give it the most effort possible. And in addition to that, having a huge chunk of his contract tied to incentives also means he's going to play that much harder. But this is, you know, this is a show me deal. This is, if it works out, we'll sign you to a long-term extension. Yeah. We're going to give you big money. I worry about 2018 production from all Sean Jeffrey, but I mean, I guess that's a problem for 2018. Yeah. Well, it's a very good deal in the short term. The question becomes is 
do you, could you eventually hurt yourself long term, depending on what happens? Yeah, and it's also worth pointing out that now, if you know, because only one year of Tory Smith's deal is guaranteed. After that, there's two team options. So, following the 2017 season, Jeffrey Jordan Matthews and Tory Smith are all theoretically free agents. <laughs> Who do you bring back? Yeah. I mean, it really depends on this year. The question becomes is, now with real other threats on the field that aren't Bryce Treggs <laughs> and, like, uh, Paul uh, uh, Nelson Aguilar, like, with, with, with real threats, can Jordan Matthews thrive in that slot position which everybody acts like he's destined for? Well, can, um, we, can we stop talking about he hasn't thrived? This is a guy who's averaged 80 catches a year over the last two seasons. Jordan Matthews right. drops some balls, but he's a good receiver. He's that's, not a number that, one receiver. That's the part. Yes, exactly. That's the part that infuriates me about fans when they talk about cutting Jordan Matthews and getting rid of him. Yeah. Dude, I understand he may drop an occasional ball, and that happens. And, you know, if you're going to be the number one go-to guy, you can't be that. Mm. But now you're adding in a lot less pressure on a guy because he's going to have more opportunity. You know what I mean? I think I think this I think this this signing really really benefits Jordan Matthews in the long run, and I think he's going to get paid whether it's by us, which I would hope, or by somebody else after next year. Well, and I mean, obviously, the guy it benefits the most is Carson Wentz. Carson played with basically oh, nothing at the wide receiver position last year, and also missing a right tackle and Alan Barber for part of the season, so. You have a healthy offensive line, and not only healthy offensive line, you have everybody's back. They just re-signed Wisniewski today to a three-year deal. Uh, announced today that they're not going to cut Kelsey, and that's that's a good decision. Kelsey had a nice bounce back here in 2016. They brought in former top ten pick uh, the Warmack from the from the Titans. And who, Love that signing. I do Love too. It. He's he's underperformed to a huge degree, but for one year and 1.2 million dollars, I believe. He's going back to play for his college, you know, his college offensive line coach Jeff Stoutland, who's the Eagles' offensive line coach now. So yeah, great, great upside and an unbelievable run blocker. So if he can turn it around, that that's wonderful. This offensive line is not only healthy; it's very deep. It's very talented. Wentz now has weapons at wide receiver. You know, there's gonna there's gonna be an interesting dynamic once the draft rolls around because. I don't know how you feel, but obviously the biggest need on the team right now is cornerbacks. The starters are currently Jalen yep. Mills and Ron Brooks. But I also think running back is a fairly big need now. Running back is a lot easier to fill than uh, than cornerback is. But ah, I'm telling you, we're looking at a draft where theoretically these these top couple of running backs are going to drop for whatever reason. And lead, you know, this is stuff we're hearing six weeks before the draft, so who knows how much of it's actually reality. But if a Leonard Fournette or a Dalvin Cook is available when we pick at 14, I'm not worried about what the cornerbacks are. I want to complete this offense, especially – Nope. Cook reminds me so yeah. much of LaShawn McCoy. I I couldn't agree with you more. If Dalvin Cook somehow falls to us at 14, I'm all in. I'm all in. I don't care about – the defense, you can patchwork some of that secondary to the best of your ability if you have a good enough pass rush. Mm-hmm. Let, let, let's – solidify the future of our offense with a running back like Dalvin Cook. I mean, I'm not as all in on Fournette. Fournette sort of worries me. Why? And I, I, he worries me with that, that whole weight thing going into the combine. And I know it's probably overblown and I'm probably looking into it too much, but that's the kind of thing that you see like, you know, 
the discipline level of a guy staying in shape and, and being ready to go. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not concerned about Fournette's weight. I'm a little bit concerned that Fournette maybe isn't the perfect style fit in terms of the offense for what the Eagles want to do. Whereas, you know, Cook, like I said, he, he reminds me a lot of LaShawn McCoy. Um, but I think both of these guys are potential elite running backs in the NFL, and I'm certainly happy to add either one of them to this team. Uh, there's, it's, it's a very, very deep running back class. But if I could grab one of those top guys, man, I, am, I would be excited about that. Now, you know, if, if they do decide to take a Sidney Jones, the cornerback from Washington, or somebody of that similar ilk, be it you know, Marshawn, Marshawn Lattimore from Ohio State or Marlon Humphrey from Alabama, one of the top-rated corners who are all kind of bunched together, and then they want to go running back in the second round, all right, I can understand that if it's, you know, a, a Christian McCaffrey or a Joe Mixon who there's significant off-the-field issues, but but he's talented. Uh, you know, Alvin Kamara from Tennessee is a guy who was a backup for the majority of his career, but his the talent and the measurables are off the charts. I don't know, but I, I just – I want that – I want that Donovan McNabb – um, LaShawn McCoy, Deshaun Jackson, Jeremy Macklin offense. I want that. We can put up yeah. 50 on anybody, any game back. Oh, gosh. Those were the days, buddy. Those were the, those were the absolute days. It, to think about how stacked that Eagles offense was yeah. from then through the, the dismal end of the Chip Kelly era, it actually it like almost blows your mind at how quickly – a team can get blown up with the wrong decision makers in place. Well, it reminds me of the cornerback situation under Andy Reid. Andy always placed such a an emphasis on having a deep, talented cornerback situation, and then all of a sudden we have the you know the um, Ron Brookses and the Leotis McKelvins and the Nolan Carrolls and those guys of the world. Uh, who is who is the unbelievably forgettable guy who we signed from the Ravens? The year for, played with it for us in 2015. Oh God! I don't oh, know. the Sconce guy. I don't uh, remember his name. That's, dude, I can't, oh my God. Um, the start, yeah, he was the so. dude. Oh, he missed some sort of he missed some sort of optional optional camp because he was out buying sconces with his wife. Uh, I'll eventually remember and it'll make me mad. That stuff is very important. I'm actually looking at the Eagles 2015 roster right now. Um, Well, it wasn't Byron Maxwell, so I wonder, was it? No. It wasn't Walter Thurman. Was it the year before? Bradley Fletcher? No, Fletcher was the other guy. No, Fletcher was the toast man. Yeah, Fletcher. He got burned on every play. Fletcher was the, the other cornerback who started opposite this gentleman I'm thinking of. And it looks like it was two, might have been 2014 actually, because this was a this was a, the Byron Maxwell year in 2015. So the starters at cornerback were Bradley Fletcher and Carrie Williams. Yeah, that's who it was, Carrie Williams. Boy, was he terrible! Oh man, dude, he was. Uh, that's why you know what you know what's crazy. Everybody was making this big push like. Oh, A.J. Bouye, however you pronounce the last name from the Texans. You know, everybody's like, oh, the Eagles are interested. The Eagles are interested. Dude, I'm sick of signing corners. I'm sick of it because every time we sign a corner, they come in and they're just – they've been trash since Asante Samuel 
every corner that we've signed has been trash. So, yeah, I, I, you know, especially Boye, who's a guy who really only had one year of being, you know, an elite player. If, uh, yeah. But you do, you worry that he is, he's Byron Maxwell 2.0 and Namdi Asimov 3.0. Oh, God. I, I still have nightmares about Namdi. Namdi couldn't cover me. No, Namdi was terrible. Point. He was absolutely terrible. Like, I thought Maxwell honestly got a little bit of a bad rap. I thought he was a really bad scheme fit for what they wanted to do, and I think that's evident in how he's playing in Miami. But, yeah, big money cornerbacks for the Eagles have just – that has not paid off. That's been an absolute disaster. I, I, I pine for the days. Pine for the days of Troy Vincent, Bobby Taylor, into Lita Shepard and Sheldon Brown. Like, Al, like Al Harris those, is the those, third corner? yeah. Don't, you can't forget Al Harris at the third corner with those with his absolutely guaranteed stone cold lock pass interference at least once a game, like that. Was, you could have you could have set your watch to Al Harris yes. getting a, a pass interference or Al personal Harris foul. Was a little penalty prone, and a little is probably an understatement. But would you not take him at? I mean, obviously not current day Al Harris, but that that version of Al Harris as your number one corner, given what's on this team right now. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you, you, there's no way you would turn it down because you have Jalen Mills who, who, don't get me wrong, he stepped up as a rookie. He definitely mm-hmm. made, you know, he was very, he was a serviceable corner for, for what he was asked to do so quickly into joining the NFL. Yeah. The thing that I cannot stand is you get burnt 15 plays in a row. You're giving up <laughs> yards after yards after yards. Uh-huh. You make one play. And you put your finger up and you start wagging it like here to Kembe Mutombo. Like, know the situation. James Realize that you just got yeah. destroyed up and down the field. James Thrash syndrome. Yeah, exactly. I need James Thrash to, to, to drop 65 balls in a row and make one catch and point to the sky. I, that, that, that's the kind of thing that I couldn't – I can't stand when guys do that. Well, that was just Thrash thanking God that he actually caught that one. <laughs> well, somebody, somebody I was talking to tried to make the point like, well, every player does that. You see guys get sacked, you know, guys who get sacked like in the fourth quarter of a game when they're down by three touchdowns and they dance. Yeah. So it's different. It's totally different because those guys are consistently out there trying to make plays. A sack is a very rare situation for a lot of guys, especially some of those interior linemen. You don't mm. get as many. So I understand the celebration. I understand guys who score touchdowns celebrating with a little bit not excessive but but you're allowed to be a little bit hype even if you're losing if you break up a pass <laughs> after you have just been getting dogged yeah. all game and you want to try to celebrate give me like the you know the cross arm you know look like get out of my face with that you just just stop because because you just make yourself look dumb yeah all right well a couple of more uh a couple more guys on this roster that they're going to have to make a decision about. There's been some talk that Chase Daniel could be available via trade, and there might be some interest. And Michael Kendricks is unquestionably available via trade, and it seems like they might cut him if they don't find a trade partner. What do you think ends up happening with those two guys? Uh, I think Daniel gets moved. I think that – Daniels, whatever, Chase Daniel. Yeah. I think uh, – I think he gets moved only because there are a couple teams out there that are really lacking in the quarterback department. I mean, I know San Fran signed a couple guys. Um, signed Matt Barkley. They're still obviously the – yeah, yeah. And Brian Hoyer. Uh, I know the a ba- great duo. The Bears, the Bears acquired uh, 
the the oh uh, apparently really really formidable Mike Glennon for fourteen and a half million dollars. That's um, that's unbelievable. It's, it's it's legitimately the most absurd thing I think I've ever seen. Like, yeah, that was that's a crazy. I, 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 I don't get it. Um, but I think I think Daniel Daniel could be serviceable for a, a couple of teams in in a backup role that might need it a little bit more than than we do. Obviously, you know, barring injury to to Carson Wentz, but. Uh, with Kendricks, like the drop off and the lack of usage by Jim Schwartz is just, it's really crazy. I think if you get him back in a scheme that fits his talent more, mm. you'll, you'll definitely see the Michael Kendricks that we had prior to Jim Schwartz coming in. Yeah. I just think the style of defense that we play now is, it doesn't fit what he can do. But I think he's still a guy, he's still a guy that can go somewhere and be very productive for a team. I'm not saying he's going to be an all pro. He's going to be a guy that can get in the rotation and actually make a difference. I could be mistaken, but wasn't the drop-off year of Kendricks the year after he signed his big contract? Wasn't that this year? Am I getting my years confused? Yeah, didn't he just sign the contract this past summer? Is, or is he in the second year? Yeah. Years? Right. No, so, no, no, no. This was his first year under that new contract. And just happens to be his worst as a professional. Yeah, you can definitely make a correlation. A lot of that happens, man. Uh, that's that's unfortunately the danger of inking guys to long-term deals and giving them big money. That's, uh... the, I don't want to say I don't want to speak for a guy, but sometimes in those cases, you know, you see the passion sort of fade because they've gotten that 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 paycheck, you know. Yeah, you know, because one of the I mean, obviously he's still working hard and all of that, but you know, one of the big stories that people tell is uh, is Jimmy Butler from the Bulls just completely changed. After he signed that big contract, he was a very, very late first-round pick out of Marquette, kind of an afterthought, known as one of the hardest-working guys in basketball, just continuously trying to get better, just working constantly, great teammate, one of the better perimeter defenders in basketball, and absolutely no ego. Then he signs this big deal, and by all accounts, he is just, you know, he's an egotistical little bad word right now. <laughs> I mean, the, bull, the Bulls are sort of a mess. Yeah. It's, it's weird. Everybody, you know, you signed an aging Dwayne Wade. You brought in, who is obviously like the biggest head case in the NBA, and Rajon Rondo. Like that guy, that guy's a lunatic. Yes. And you, you, you kind of made all these moves, and the team's just not responded. But that can, especially in the NBA, because that money, that that's guaranteed money. Yes. You know what I mean? Like that's you, you signed whatever's on that page. That's what you're getting. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. So, I can see I can see how that would change your your drive, man. It would change. I'm sure. Like I would, I'm gonna tell you right now. I guarantee you, it would change my drive for certain <laughs> things. Like if I was if I was an athlete like that, and I was putting my body through, you know, crazy workouts, being like a super intense guy. I'm in the gym shooting all that time, you know, to, to get that pay, get that that paycheck. And I get that. You know what? All right, it's a Tuesday. Maybe I'll only go shoot around for an hour as opposed to two. Mm. Like, I could see how that can affect somebody. Of course, I'm not an elite athlete. I'm just a guy. Don't sell yourself short. Um, (laughs) That's going to be Blind Spots Volume 2. We will be back here next week talking more more MMA and more of whatever else we want to talk about (laughs) at the end. So thanks for listening. Thanks for the ratings. Please keep it up. Please rate and review. It helps us out an incredible amount. I'm Chris Warwardell. He's Greg Crone. We'll see you back here next week.